Now, I want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read um, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through to 10. And uh, my intention is to break apart this section into three messages. And we began last week. And I'm thinking about the diagnosis that Paul gives for the the problem of the, the human race and what's wrong with us. And now we're beginning to turn our attention on what the Bible says is the remedy. So let's read um, from chapter 2, verse 1 through to verse 10. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, we might, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to pray briefly. Father, I ask that you will open our eyes to see the truth of who you are and what you've done for us and in us. And cause us to walk in the truth of that, Lord, with upright backs and hearts strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, if you were here, um, I began to describe for you what is the biblical diagnosis of the human condition, what the Bible says is wrong with humanity. Everyone will agree fundamentally that things are not as they ought to be and that humans have an almost limitless capacity to perpetrate evil one against another. And we're asking the question, what is the reason for this? And led you along with Paul's thinking to a recognition that what the Bible has to say about our situation is that it tells us that we have a more bleak situation without Jesus than just about any other philosophy or worldview in history or in the world globally. That Christianity has the darkest, most damning verdict or diagnosis about our problem. And you can imagine it, remember we're using the likeness of the importance of diagnosis, of going to the doctor and of presenting symptoms. And you can imagine humanity as being like a patient going to a doctor or different kinds of doctors. And if you might, went into the doctor's surgery with terrible, terrible symptoms, you're coughing up blood, you are losing weight rapidly, you are jaundiced all over, then obviously there's something wrong. And in a sense, that's a picture of the reality of humankind. There are problems. And if you go into the atheist doctor, the doctor atheist office, they might look you up and down. He might then decide there's actually nothing wrong with you because there was nothing, there's no right, there's no wrong. Uh, there just is. 
And the entire purpose of living is just to take whatever you, what joy you can in this moment and go on with your life. Just eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die anyway. So there's a kind of a shrug of the shoulders and dismissal as you leave the doctor's room. And then if you go into the doctor's office and the doctor represents sort of this cultural moment we're in, the doctor might well acknowledge that there is a problem. Humanity has a problem. But then we'll say, well, look, the problem is that all of us are just victims of our situations and circumstances. And let me just prescribe to you a course of therapy at only 95 pounds per hour. If you learn to love yourself, all will be well with you and all can be made right in the world. And that's essentially the sum total of the answer that's offered to us in our day and age. You walk into a doctor's office who represents religion. You'll recognize that there's an issue. But we'll say, look... You can get out of this. Let me offer you a five-step plan to remedying your condition and your problem. And that's what religions offer. They offer us a pathway or a ladder in order to climb our way out of the mess that we're in with the prospect that if you work hard enough, you strain every sinew in your being, you try and suppress what's evil and promote what's good in your heart, then eventually you will ascend to the higher heights of whatever is on offer in that particular faith. Christianity cuts across all of these visions and says, no, I can see something's wrong with you. In fact, it's much, much worse than you thought. You think you're dying. Actually, you're already dead. And so the Bible opens with this diagnosis, says you're dead. This is what Paul said at the start of this passage. You are dead in your sins. Not only were you dead, but you were in a kind of experience of being in slavery to the world, following the course of the world, he says, in slavery to spiritual darkness so that our eyes are blinded to the truth and also led by the passions of our own flesh, unable to suppress or control our own lusts and desires. That's what is wrong with humanity. As much as we want to improve ourselves fundamentally, we are incapable and unable of doing so and with the consequence that Humans lie under the condemnation, the anger, the wrath of God. That's what Paul said in the opening of this chapter. And yet, having given us the bleakest vision of the problem, Christianity also offers us the most hopeful, life-giving remedy. And this, having said that there's literally nothing that you can do for yourself to dig yourself out of this hole, the entire tenor of the gospel message, as it's summarized here so incredibly succinctly in this chapter and these 10 verses, turns on just these two words. Having described that condition, you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and so on. Everything turns at the beginning of the fourth verse when there are just these two small words. But God. Everything pivots on the goodness and the action of God in Christianity. It doesn't pivot on you. In fact, that's an incredible relief because it takes all the weight off of your shoulders. This is not about you changing your own life. The remedy comes in and Paul says, but God, everything changes because of him. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, because he is so bountiful and full and overflowing in mercy, which is, which is a kind of grace given to you despite being undeserving and because he loves you even though you're an object of wrath. God intervenes. The whole Christian faith, in a sense, can be summarized in that verse, but God being rich in mercy. Because it's saying that fundamentally the posture of the Christian is not one of strain and stress and striving, but it's one of receiving. 
of opening your heart up to something that you don't deserve and you can never earn, this mercy, this love, this grace, this generosity, this life-transforming power, but God. And I want to ask you with you the question today, what is it that God does in us? What is the change that he affects in us? If we were describing last week the condition without Jesus, of your spiritual death, of being a slave, of being condemned, what is it that he accomplishes in you when you come to know Christ? And in order to answer that question, we cannot, I don't think it's, it's appropriate necessarily to begin with the subjective element, your experience of meeting Jesus. All of us who have become Christians have a story to tell. And some of those stories would take your breath away. A story to tell of the grace of God in our lives, the experience we've had of God's mercy, the things that we had done and the things that we were prior to knowing him and what he accomplished in us. But I don't want to begin there. It's not that that stuff doesn't matter. But I don't think that that's ever where the Bible starts. It doesn't start with your subjective experience and the the internal knowledge of what it means to know Jesus. And for good reason. If you start there, it naturally leads to comparison with other people and judging your spiritual state based on your sense of how well you've progressed so far. And it leads to a kind of introspection where you're thinking about how well you're progressing. In other words, it puts the weight back upon you. The Bible doesn't do that. What the Bible rather does is it takes us further back into the mind and the heart of who God is and what he has accomplished for us in Christ long before you were even born. And so what we need to do is we need to think about both sides of this. The things that are true about you, even if you don't feel them to be true. And then also the experience of what it means to know Christ. The objective truth and the subjective truth. And I think it's vital as Christians to begin with and have a solid grounding in what the Bible says objectively is true about you. There are many things that you can learn about yourself through study. All of us went to school and... Maybe in biology lessons, you learn things about yourself that you could not intuit by your own sense of feeling and and your intuition, your sense of yourself. You learned things about your structure and how you're made. Maybe some of you have learned a little bit about your family tree or the history of your people or of your nation. And all of this tells you that there are things that you can learn about yourself, your identity, the way you're structured, the way you're made, that doesn't emerge from the inside out through just feeling and thinking, but rather is truth that you learn from the outside in. And that's how the Bible wants to shape you and think, reshape your mind. You can learn truth about yourself from the outside in. And that's where the, the job and the task of biblical theology comes in and biblical anthropology. What am I before God? But then with it comes the life-changing power of the gospel. And I want to just really talk about all of that today and ask this question, what is the change that God brings about in the life of a Christian? Maybe you aren't a Christian. What I'm doing today is holding out for you what Christ offers, the difference that he can make for you. But maybe you are a Christian, you find yourself sunk in a hole, Feeling defeated, feeling condemned, feeling like you just can't make any progress. What I have to say to you today can have the power, when you receive it, understand it, to elevate you and to help you walk out of this place with fresh vigor and strength. So let's ask this question then. What is it that God has done in and for us? And the first thing to understand anything that Paul says here, the first premise we have to put in place is this. 
that you, if you are a believer in Jesus, you have been joined to Christ. Now, this is the most important and least understood doctrine in the New Testament. It's called the doctrine of union with Christ. When you have eyes to see it, you realize that it's everywhere throughout the pages of the New Testament. But because it's so difficult to, to grasp at times, I think particularly because of the way our modern Western minds are wired, we miss it. But actually, this idea of being joined to Christ, being united to Christ, is more fundamental in the New Testament than a lot of the other words that you associate with salvation. Words like justification or sanctification or regeneration or glorification and all the Asian words that, that summarize what it means to be saved. If you don't know what they are, don't worry. You've got plenty of time to get there. More fundamental than all of that is this idea, this truth, that to be a Christian is to be joined to Jesus, to be united with him. And you can't quite see it in this passage because of the way it's translated in English. But in the Greek, Paul invents three words, the verbs here, he invents three words to capture and to seek to put across this reality. And they come through in verses 5 and 6 when he says, when he says here that, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, the first one is here. He made us alive together with Christ. In Greek, that's just the one word. We were co-made alive. Then the same in the next verse where it says we were raised up with him. In the Greek, again, it's another one word. You were co-raised with him. And finally, again, where it says we were seated us with him. It says you were co-seated with him. You were co-made alive, co-raised, co-seated. Now, if that car belongs to any of you, <laughs> make a swift exit, deal with it, thank you. Um, it's one of the downsides of being an introvert. Every little thing just gets into my brain and rattles around at extra volume. Anyway, where was I? Union with Christ. The least understood, most important doctrine in the New Testament about what it means to be a Christian. This idea that you've been joined with him. You've been co-made alive, co-raised, co-seated with Christ. And I want to take that apart for you and help you understand what is it. What is union with Christ? And here's my summary statement. Take hold of this. Grasp this, what it means. It means that there is a bond, an unbreakable bond for the Christian with Jesus himself. That your destiny has become entwined with his and so that you are inseparable from him. Now, some, in some ways, this is very familiar to you. If you've been in and around the Christian faith for any length of time, you'll know the language of Christ being in you. And sometimes that's exactly how the scriptures speak about this. In Ephesians 3, for example, chapter 17, Paul's praying uh, that they will be, be able to grasp uh, the reality of God's love, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And you know this language. Uh, that Very often we speak about what it means to be a Christian is that Christ is in me. Let me give you another example. In the first letter, in, in Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 1, here's how he puts it in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So part of what it means to be a Christian is this idea that Jesus has come to take residence in your life. You're joined to him because he's inside you. 
But that's not actually the most common way that the New Testament speaks about what it means to be joined to Christ. More commonly still, the language that comes through all the time in Paul's letters is that the idea that you are actually in Christ. It's the other way around. So again, in, in, the, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, here's how he puts it in the third chapter. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are in Christ. Perhaps a more clear example of this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says in chapter 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has gone. Come. That's what it means to be a Christian. The old life has died. It's, it's gone. It's buried. It's disappeared. You're a new creation, but you're not just a new creation as a standalone creature. You're a new creation in Christ. And how are we meant to understand this? I think this is quite hard to get our heads around. I think it's maybe easier for us to understand the concept of Jesus coming to be in us. We understand the idea of spiritual presence and power, don't we? And it doesn't just, that idea doesn't just exist within the Christian faith. We understand the idea that God's spirit can come and breathe, can come and fill us, can come and strengthen us, can come and empower us. I think to some extent we understand the idea that Christ comes and dwells in our hearts. And that's certainly part of what the Christian faith teaches. Jesus in you. And you're not a Christian unless Christ is in you. Unless you open the door, as it were, and he's taken residence in your heart. And I think we, we more intuitively and naturally grasp that idea. But the other side to it, I think, is slightly more complex. It's this idea that you're also in Christ. And without this, I don't think we have a faith. We don't have a salvation. So let me just break this down for you into, into two concepts here. You can think of it as a kind of covenant connection. I'll explain what I mean by that. And you can also think of it as a spiritual connection. And here's what I mean by these two terms. The covenant connection is this. That we've been bound to Jesus like a marriage in a covenantal union with him. And the nature of a covenant union is that one person can act on behalf of the other. And we understand that this is how the Bible explains the destiny of the human race. It says that when Adam sinned, everyone fell into sin in Adam because we are covenantally united with Adam. We were in Adam, it says in Romans 5. So that when he sinned, he sinned on our behalf. We were, in a sense, in his loins. And all of the human race were covenantally bound to that one action which plummeted us into the reality of being sinners, which explains why all humans are born imperfect creatures. I know some people resist that idea. They, they become practically apoplectic at the phrase original sin, but it's one of the most self-evidently obvious ideas that you've ever uttered, right? Can you ever point to a perfect person who doesn't have sin dwelling in their hearts? It's because you fell in Adam. But the flip side to that is that the Bible says, when Christ accomplished for us salvation by his life, death, resurrection, you were saved in him. And he becomes the head of a new race because he's the covenant head of a new humanity. Now, I know that these are strange ideas to get your head around, but actually, this is actually quite normal in day-to-day -day life. Think, for example, about the actions that governments take on our behalf, particularly ambassadors. When an ambassador goes to visit another nation, they might negotiate 
on behalf of their entire nation because they, they stand there as a kind of covenant head or federal head of the entire nation. If the British ambassador goes to the United States to try and seal a trade deal or goes to the European Union and tries to tweak the Brexit deal, they're doing things on our behalf that affect us in our day-to-day life because they represent us. That's what it means to be a federal head. And that's what the Bible says about Jesus, that his actions were done on our behalf because he represented us in all the things that he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. I think even in a more day-to-day example of this, if you're a sports fanatic, which I emphatically am not, as many of you know, but if you are, when your team go and travel to play other teams, The normal language that's used is you say, we played. Of course, you didn't contribute at all. You were not incapable of contributing. But you say, we played. And then it's either we lost or we won. In a sense, that team represents you because through some mysterious process, you become covenantally bound to them. And my advice is extricate yourself from that covenant and your life will be much happier. But that's up to you to decide. Marriage is probably the most obvious example of this. When a husband and wife are joined together in marriage, the reality is that their highs and their lows come together because they're covenantally bound. You become one flesh, the Bible says. It's a covenant union. And what that means, let's, let's, let's look at this in terms of cold, hard brass. If you marry someone who's in debt... I'm sorry to break it to you, now you are in debt. That's just how it works. You are now a unit. If you marry someone wealthy, on the other hand, the opposite is true. Take what advice from that you will. (laughs) But this is how covenants work. When you're bound to one another, the actions of one person represent you. That's how federal headship works in Scripture. And the actions of Adam and then the actions of Christ are the two great covenant heads or federal heads in the Bible. Their actions have determined the destinies of humankind. And this is what it means when the Bible says that you are in Christ. It says that you're joined to him as your covenant head. And you can think of it as a covenant connection, but also there's more than that. It's also a spiritual connection, which means this, that when you become a believer, your life becomes entwined with that of Jesus in the deepest possible spiritual way. This is how Jesus speaks about it in John chapter 15. He says, I'm the true vine. He says, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. What he's saying is, just as a branch, in order to bear fruit, has to remain attached to the trunk so that the sap can flow and it can remain full of life. That's what the Christian's relationship looks like to Jesus. You're joined to him in a spiritual way. He lives in you, but you are also in him. And that explains how your life is totally inseparably bound with the destiny of Jesus. You're joined to him. And this lies in the background behind what Paul has to say here in verses 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ raised us up 
with him, seated us with him. And this brings us to my second point. Not only are you joined to Jesus, the Christian's position also is this, that you have journeyed with Christ from the cross to the throne. That's what Paul is saying here. Somehow, in a mystical and spiritual sense, you being covenantally bound to Jesus as a believer in Christ means that your life has become spiritually tethered to him so that the things that are true of him now become true of you. And maybe these are inadequate pictures, but think about a barnacle. A barnacle is a strange creature. It cannot move very far or very fast. But what it can do is it can stick itself to a great power be it a giant container ship or a whale. And by that method, the barnacle can travel the oceans. In a sense of what we are to Jesus. He is the great power and we are attached to him on his journey from the cross to the throne. Or think about a train carriage. A carriage has no life or power in and of itself, does it? Left alone on the tracks, it's a sad object. But when it is coupled to a mighty engine, that carriage can travel. And what the, the Bible has to say is that by some work of God, the Christian is someone who's been joined to Jesus in his journey. Now, you know, and we have to begin by looking at Christ and looking at the things that he accomplished. What did he do for us? The New Testament describes him as the pioneer of our faith. And so it depicts what he accomplished as a journey. He was a groundbreaker, a path maker. He went to the cross to die for sin. Then he was buried and then he was raised from the dead to be the pioneer of new life, to give life to all mankind. And now he's seated at the Father's hand where he has become the new Adam to rule over God's creation. The pioneer of our faith. And the Apostles' Creed summarizes it like this. The most widely accepted definition of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. You can see how all of those phrases echo what Paul has to say here in Ephesians chapter 2. So being a Christian believes that this thing, is believing those things firstly about Jesus, that he died for your sin, that he was raised from the dead, and that he is now ruling and reigning from the right hand of the Father and will return to judge the living and the dead. If you don't believe those things, you are not a Christian. But if you do, then brother, sister, you are. But now what you have to understand is what's true about you. It's most important to believe what's true about him, but now grasp what he's saying about you. He says that you were with Jesus at every one of those steps. Which is why sometimes in Paul's letters he speaks, he starts to step back and talks about us having been crucified or dying with Christ. It's there in Galatians 2, one of the most precious verses in all the scripture. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do you live the Christian faith? How do you, as someone who's not a believer, contemplate going from the life that you've lived now to a new life in which you identify with and call yourself a Christian? The answer is a death has to take place, your own death. There's a sense in which you have to 
put everything behind you. And what Paul says is that death happened when Christ died on the cross. I know these things are difficult to grasp, but you're saying that your life died with his on that tree 2,000 years ago so that you can begin afresh. And this is where Paul normally begins. But in Ephesians 2, he jumps over that point and he starts to talk about all the good things that come after the death. And he talks about this. He says that we've been co-made alive with Christ, that we were made alive together with him in verse 5, which corresponds with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Then he says that we were co-raised when he says that we were raised up with him, which corresponds with Christ's ascension from earth to God's presence, to the new life he now lives in glory. And then he says that you were co-seated when you were seated with him, which corresponds with the enthronement of Jesus when the father said, come and take your place, son, at my right hand. Now, I know that these things are difficult to grasp and to comprehend and to get our heads around, but what this means is this. That the most true things about you are the things that have already taken place in the past. In fact, they took place 2,000 years ago. That because of your being bound to Jesus, you've already died. You've already been raised up. You've already been raised to be with God, and you've already been put in that position of being seated with Christ eternally. And therefore, if these things are already true about you, you have the most secure position imaginable. The Christian does not need to be anxious, fretful, striving, worried, any of those things. All of this is true about you. The only thing now is to learn how to live in the light of it. Now listen, I know that if you feel like you're, you're getting lost... I want to stress that what you believe about Jesus is more important than what you believe about yourself. Believe on him. Just, just grab hold of him. Be the barnacle. Be the carriage. Just take hold of Jesus. That's all that really matters. But I also want to stress this, that the things that I'm trying to tell you about yourself, the way that you have died, that you've been made alive, raised, seated with him, I also think that you've begun to experience this if you think about this. This is true to your experience. Now, this stuff is true objectively, whether you believe it or not. But it's also true and resonates with our experience, what we know, what we know it means to be a Christian. And this brings me on to this next point, that you've begun to experience this. And here what I'm trying to stress for you is this is not just intellectual ideas and frameworks and, 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 and uh, sort of concepts that I'm trying to layer into your mind that you can grasp that have no relevance to your day-to-day -day life. True conversion to Jesus is always a mingling of the understanding and the affections, the head and the heart, knowledge and also experience. It's always these two things weaved together in an inseparable way. So we start with your understanding. We recognize the truth about Jesus, who he is, what he's accomplished for us, and we believe on that. But the gospel is also something that you feel. It's a power that you experience in your life, which is why at the end of the section when Paul says that we are his workmanship in verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, what he's saying is that you have been brought in to the mechanics workshop and he's begun tinkering in your life. And things have changed about you. There's been irreparable um, 
not, you can't say damage, it's the other way around. That's not, the reparable is not the right word. That you've been repaired. You're being repaired. You're his workmanship. You're being fixed. You're being made right. And that's something that you know has happened in your life. And so all of these things that are true of you, being made alive, being raised, being seated with him, all of this corresponds with your experience in some way. And let me just show you how that's true. Think about the first one. That you were made alive, he says, together with Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead and you've been raised. What does that mean? Well, Remember what we were saying last week, how the verdict of being dead does not mean physically dead, not yet at least. It's spiritual death. It's what Adam and Eve suffered when they were exiled from the Garden of Eden. So they no longer knew intimacy with God. They no longer felt his presence and his closeness and his love. They were estranged from him. And when you, all of us were born in that condition of being spiritually dead. And so to be made alive with Christ is the opposite of that. So now you have a heart that resonates with God. The frequency of who God is. You love him. That's the work of God in your heart. You could not have loved him by some choice of the will. It's the Holy Spirit who's made you alive to him. You want to respond to him. You hear his voice. You recognize his voice in scripture and you feel the leadings and the nudgings and the pressure of the Holy Spirit living in you. You're alive to God. This spiritual life is something real to the Christian. This is why, again, in that verse in Galatians 2, the way Paul puts it, let me read these words over you again. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The Christian is someone who can say, yes, imperfectly and incompletely, but can say, I know what that means. I know what it means to have the life of Christ in me. I've been made alive. I'm aware of the presence of God. I'm aware when I displease him and I long to please him. There's a, there's a pull towards him and his ways. This is what it means to be alive. And friends, I want to stress for you, this is a felt reality. It's not just a theory. It's not just a statement of theology. This is something you know intimately in your walk with God. And if it isn't true to your experience, then you must ask yourself whether you've really come to know Jesus or whether perhaps your Christian faith has been more of a hollow and traditional thing because this is spiritual life and this is power or else it's not Christianity. You've been made alive. And then when you think about the second statement where he says you've been raised up with him, you've been co-raised with him. Remember what he said about us in our condition before we knew Jesus, how you were a slave your sin. You're a slave. You're following the ways of the world. You're blinded by Satan. You were, you, were, you were drawn along in the passions of your lust, uncontrolled lust. You felt like you could not, you could not control your desires, and you were, you were ruled by them. That's what the Bible says about us without Jesus' power in us. But now something's changed. What it means to be made alive in Jesus is that now you have freedom the New Testament says. So to be raised up with him means that you're now living in the life that Christ now lives, a life of freedom in the presence of God. Romans 6 puts this in the most beautiful and perfect way, I think. 
Romans 6, 4, he says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You're no longer a slave to the old life that you once lived. You now walk in newness of life. Then he explains it like this. He says, if we've been united with him in death, in a death like his, there's this doctrine of union with Christ. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. So what it means to be made alive and then raised up with Christ is that now the Christian has the dignity and the freedom of being able to live a life in which you are no longer ruled by the tyranny of sin in your own actions. And it isn't that you've totally shaken off the power of sin of your life, but rather that a new force, a stronger power has come to take hold of you. You're now alive in Jesus and you're free. How does that work? Well, one of the things that, that he tells us later in Romans chapter 6 is that God's begun to change your desires. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, once you despised God's law, you didn't want to live a godly life. But now there is an impulse inside you. This is the new life he's given you. There's an impulse inside you. That whereas the the strongest impulse used to be lust, now the strongest impulse is the desire to obey the Lord, to call him Lord, and to want to fulfill his will in your life. And I'm not denying that there is often a great battle between these two powers in our lives here and now. I feel it myself. But the new thing is real. And the new thing is this longing, this new impulse, this desire. You become obedient from the heart. And now every act that seeks to bring God pleasure, every act of obedience is you walking in the new life that he's given to you. You've been raised up with him, brother, sister. And that's more true of you than the battle with uncontrollable desires and lusts that used to be true of you. And then when he says this third thing, that you were seated with him, seated with him in the heavenly places, remember what he said about us before, that we were objects of God's wrath. We could not have been in a lower place. We were in the place of condemnation, of feeling the weight of guilt and of shame for our sin. We were aware of our distance from God. We were condemned. But now what the New Testament says is that you have been raised up with Christ and seated with him. Here's how he put it in chapter 1, if you recall, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He predestined us for adoption as sons. In other words, you were condemned. Now you've been given the inheritance rights of a son, which means that where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father to inherit all things, that's where you are. 
And I think I can put it as strongly as this. That the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus. He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Your status is no different from his. You've been seated with him in heavenly places. So when you walk through life feeling the coldness or the distance or the condemnation, understand that all of that is a lie. Understand that all of that needs to be thrown off. That was your old life, friend. You're no longer there. You're now seated with him in heavenly places. Where are you? You're where the sun belongs. You have sonship. And he loves you as much as he loves his own son. You are now a son. The Christian who lives what you can describe as a triumphant Christian life is the Christian who allows these truths to sink into the deepest part of their being. Appropriate them. Grab them. Understand them. Let them reshape how you think and feel about yourself. So while this stuff is true objectively, friend, my hope, my desire, my prayer is that as you begin to take hold of it, it's going to become true in your feeling also. Your calling is to live in the light of this. It's wrong to live as though you were still dead, still a slave, still condemned. It's bad for you, first of all, because you're not living in the good of all that Christ has accomplished in you. But also, it diminishes the glory of God. A Christian who goes through life feeling terrible about themselves all the time, feeling miserable about their condition, feeling a sense of heaviness and, and coldness and, and self-condemnation, is not living in the truth that's now true of you. And that somehow does not reflect well on the Father. And what Paul has to say here at the end, after having described to us how we've been made alive, how we've been raised up, how we've been seated with him. What does he say in verse 7? He says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He wants to make you a trophy, in other words, of all that he can and has accomplished in you. He wants to display his goodness and his grace and his kindness in and through you. And now let me ask you the question, how does your life best display his goodness? The answer is by living like a son. By living in the knowledge that you've been made alive, raised up, seated with him, and allowing that to shape your sense of, who, of yourself. Allowing that to be the thing that's most true about you so that you no longer believe in the narratives that the enemy wants to ply you with when he wants to cause you to feel rubbish, And wicked and evil. But rather you say, no, all of that's, that's wrong. I died with Jesus. I've been made alive with Jesus. I've been raised with Jesus. And now I'm seated with Jesus. So go away, Satan. Friends, our greatest calling as Christians is to live in the light of these truths. And the believer who grasps them will live with the dignity and the upright strength and might of what it means to be a child of God.